Um, I feel like people who know me hear so much about India because any travel story that comes up, my immediate reaction is to go the stories from India because of the things that I tried there, the things that I got to experience there and got to immerse myself in there. Um, just had such a, for lack of a better word, profound impact on me and my life and my way of thinking and the way that I want to set up my walk through the human existence. Uh, my, my perception of, of all my goals for life kind of changed on that trip. I was there for like four weeks. Um, I got the invite from two college friends, uh, Max and Quentin and Max's grandmother for a long time had been building schools in India, setting up these uh, educational buildings in uh, sometimes rural, sometimes urban villages. Um, I think mostly actually kind of urban villages like Howrah, which is the one that I ended up visiting. It's a dumpster city, which literally means a village kind of built on a landfill, a massive dump, a massive landfill. And... I got the opportunity to go because he frequently visits India because his grandmother did all that phenomenal work, you know, building schools. And I immediately said yes when they threw me the invite. I'd been hanging out with these guys for a couple of months and I just couldn't resist being a part of this trip. The unfamiliar just attracts me for some reason. I think I caught that in Peru where I just want to see new stuff. I want to go places where I haven't seen it on people's Instagram feed before. Haven't seen it on the Instagram stories. Only see them maybe like Netflix documentaries and shit like that. Um, just uncharted, relatively uncharted territory. Of course, there are tons of Americans who have gone to India. I've met so many people that have had experiences in India that are from the States and stuff like that. I'm not saying it's a completely unique or foreign experience to everybody, but you know, I would rather check out, um, some gnarly depths of India again, then say, check out England. Not that I wouldn't want to go to England eventually, but I'd want to be in a place more unfamiliar than, you know, kind of Western society, big cities that kind of fit a certain mold. Of course, each of them has their own unique culture and flavor. Getting sidetracked, this is what happens with me with travel stories. So I get the invite from them, jump on it immediately, save the money, and we start planning for the trip. Quentin leaves a bit earlier. He goes to study abroad in uh, West Bengal. And uh, he's there for like five months before Max and I even show up. Hit winter break, which is the time that we were planning to go because it's a month long. And we fly out of SFO, go to Munich for a night. That shit was so fun. Munich, Germany was one of the best places I've ever been. Um, we started out at Hofbrauhaus. House. We had an 18-hour layover. So we had to experience Munich for 18 hours. So we pulled, <laughs> staying up off of the uh, plane ride. Right when we got off, we spent the whole 18 hours awake and then went back to the airport. Um, checked out Hofbrauhaus House first. Got a bunch of beers, got some food there. It was delicious, all of it. I was already starting to feel tipsy. We met up with this group of really friendly British people from Birmingham. Shout out to you guys. You were super nice. We're sorry we ended up ditching you. They took us to this like really stereotypical hole-in-the-wall German bar. It felt so German. There was an accordion player in there and just a wall full of beer, just taps. And it was so small, cramped space, almost like that... Uh, underground bar in inglorious bastards it almost felt exactly like that and uh you know we're sitting there i'm 
drinking i'm starting to feel like really drunk which i'm never super comfortable with i don't like feeling really drunk especially in a place that i don't know so i go downstairs to smoke and there's a guy out there and he sees my in and out jacket and he's like oh my god in and out i've been there i've been to the one in san francisco and i'm like no way i'm from the bay area and like we hit it off he offers me a spliff i'm like okay let's try some german weed start hitting that shit then we end up ditching that group because max met this girl named sophie and we ended up exploring different parts of munich went to multiple different bars ended up at a club the whole night started to get blurry we ended up getting back to the airport on a limb i almost left my fucking phone on the german metro which didn't have a lick of english written anywhere on it i wouldn't have been able to find the fucking phone if i had lost it that would have been game over that would have been the worst start to it. i haven't even gotten to india yet i'm in my 18 hour layover portion almost lose my phone it's okay though make it back to the airport i get on the plane I knock out. I sleep for the whole 12-hour flight. I was so fucked up. I kind of got to experience the hangover in the airport because there was like a three-hour gap between the time we got to the airport and the time we boarded the plane. So I'm just sitting around. I can't sleep. I'm really intoxicated off of multiple different substances, marijuana, tobacco, alcohol, all of it just going ham in my system and uh, find some airport food, scarf it down. Um, pretty sure I went to the bathroom. I don't think I puked, uh, shockingly. Oh, no, no, no. I puked in one of the bars, but I didn't puke at the airport. And uh, get on the plane, knock out for the whole 12-hour flight, wake up in Mumbai, and this is when, like, the adventure kind of begins. So we have to give our visa. That shit takes forever, and we miss our flight to Delhi. Go buy new plane tickets. It's like 7 in the morning now at this point. Like, I just slept the whole flight is really really early by the time we get to delhi and the flight is beautiful because we get to catch the sunrise so we land and the first thing i notice is just the red sun the blaring red sun from all of the pollution of course uh but it looks like really reminiscent for those of you uh in the states i think the whole country got affected by the california wildfires it looked the sky in india or at least in the parts of India that I went, always looks like how it did when the fires were going on here in California. The sun is red. There's just kind of this cloud. And you end up finding out it's from all the vehicles and, and air pollution um, really quickly because right when I stepped off the plane, it just poisons your nose. Like you're just that first breath. You're like, oh, smog. It's almost like you put your face right up to the exhaust pipe of a car. But you get used to it pretty quickly. I, I, I got over it relatively quickly. Um pick up our bags we're in delhi we're super stoked max and i had finally gotten there after all that crazy travel stuff and the first thing max sees when we get out is a tuk-tuk driver which are the little rickshaws they're like a little go-kart almost a i think they're like a tricycle motorcycle some of them are quads um but then with like a covering and then they just kind of zip through traffic they have a steering wheel gas pedal all reminiscent of a mini cooper but way less material and uh probably not as fast i think we were zipping maybe like 45 50 in this thing which is crazy so we load up this tuk-tuk with our fucking bags we low ride this tuk-tuk we look like we're you know trying to stunt in <laughs> a car show in los angeles but instead we're in india in a little tuk-tuk so our bags are weighing it down we get in the back and uh, we hop in Tuk-tuk driver pulls out this like little pack of cigarette looking things. They look like mini backwoods. And Max immediately goes like, ah, oh, beady. So start smoking some beady, which are these little, like I said, hand-rolled cigarette type things. They're like little uh, 
best way to describe them is backwards, which is the gas station cigar that a lot of people roll blunts in. I think that that's probably the best comparison for BD, but it's just tobacco. And uh, Max got all excited, so the driver like has a big ass smile on his face. Finds out we're American. He's like, "Oh shit, fuck yeah!" Like apparently, uh, as I'm sure I'll continue to tell that uh, people in India fucking for some reason like love to find out you're American. They're not super stoked when they find out you're British, but they're super stoked when they find out you're American and you're visiting. They they love that shit. They ask to take selfies with you even though you're not famous, and it's pretty cool. But Rickshaw driver has a big ass smile on his face, starts passing us these fucking BDs. We light them up, we're smoking them, we're flying like 45, 50 down this New Delhi highway. Max told him the name of the hostel. This bro didn't use GPS or anything. He was just like, okay, hop in, I'll take you there. We're like, all right, fuck, I guess this is how it goes. Um, we're flying, smoking the BD. The scenery is beautiful. Um, we drive past some government buildings. Definitely can see the British influence, even in Delhi, which is now the new capital. Calcutta was actually the capital of the British Raj. I think it, it's uh, my terminology is not fucked up there. Um, but New Delhi was just beautiful. British architecture, traditionally Indian architecture. When you get into the main parts of like the marketplaces and the bazaars, and especially where our hostel was, you start to get into the more... You know, what you think of uh, India from like documentaries and things that you watch on it. Um, if you've ever seen like Planet Earth when they do the uh, urban episode in the second season of Planet Earth, uh, the monkey city, which I fucking forget the name of. I didn't go there, but how the buildings are stacked on top of each other and like the old, um, like almost like cement like material is probably not cement, but it almost looks like the buildings are made of some sort of cement or limestone or, you know, I'm not a great geologist, but very traditional when you get into the, uh, like past the Capitol buildings and into the heart of Delhi pulled up at our hostel. I'm immediately hungry. It's like 10, <laughs> excuse me. <coughs> uh going on the rant here it's like 10 o'clock in the morning and uh, i'm immediately hungry check into the hostel and uh meet up with quentin he was already there because he had been in india for five months he was super excited to see us a little reunion it was super cute a little romantic and uh checking the hostel and i'm like i'm really hungry quentin's like okay but before we go you got to try some of this hash i'm like oh fuck never had hash before smoked a ton of weed in my day at that point in time but had never tried hash and had never even really. The only thing that I knew about hash was from a Weezer song called Hash Pipe that my dad, when I was a kid, used to make me listen to. And uh, to kind of edit it, he would say, oh, no, he's saying half pipe. So I kept saying, like, I got my half pipe, like what you skateboard on. But the song is hash pipe. And as I got older, I was like, he's not saying half pipe. So Quentin's like, you got to try this Manali cream that I got while up in Manali, India which is this mountain city, borders Nepal, looks really beautiful. I unfortunately didn't get the opportunity to go. My next trip to India, Manali is my first destination. But apparently they grow a lot of hash there. It grows in the, uh, the Himalayas. And uh, they produce it up there. And he's like, this shit is the best you'll ever get. So he rolls it on a bed of tobacco into a joint, sparks it up. And after like two hits for my weed smokers out there, you'll know what I'm talking about. For my non-weed smokers, I'm sorry, I'm not going to dive into the terminology I'm about to use. But after two hits, it felt like taking a really intense dab of wax off of a rig. 
Um, I had never, ever, ever felt anything like that from a joint. But it was weird. It was smooth, too. It was really intense. You get brought up really quickly, but then plateau in a nice way. And he's like, isn't this the shit? I was like, oh, my God. I wish I could feel confident in my ability to get some of this back to the States, which I didn't. I didn't feel confident in my ability at all. So I didn't end up doing that. But we smoked that hash joint down, and it felt incredible. It was like nothing I'd ever smoked in the States before. It was truly, I, I recommend it. If you go to India and uh, you dabble in uh, weed while you're in whatever your home is, check out some of the hashish. It's, it's next level. So we smoked that, and we get into the heart of town. And the first shit that I see, like, it's, it's amazing. We're on the edge of this alleyway that takes us to a mosque. And amidst that, of course, it's almost like a downtown in America where there are shops on the bottom floors and homes and sometimes restaurants on the second floors of the buildings. Really narrow alleyways, buildings on either side of you, packed with people. Mopeds are going in and out. Mind you, India is a country of 1.3, probably 1.4 or 5 now, billion people. So you notice it like right away when you get there. There are tons of people everywhere. And the alleyway that we were walking through was really narrow, walking by a bunch of shops. There's just this dude butchering a lamb in the streets. He's sitting on a little log. He's got two metal bowls, one for waste, one for the shit that he was keeping, just butchering this lamb. And it was one of the coolest things I ever saw. If I had a stove back at the hostel, I would have bought some lamb off of him right there. Because like, it's the freshest you're ever going to get. It was probably like killed like right there. He was chopping it up right there. He was showing you the cuts. And it was incredible. One of the coolest things I've ever seen go down a little bit you know you see a guy selling chickens these chickens are packed and like this it, it was it was cruel but like you know the guy's making his money um we got this chicken coop like 10 by 10 just packed with chickens and he's selling them chopping off their heads feathering plucking them it's like you know you're getting like freshly killed produce and probably cooking it that night and i feel like that's a lot of the way the food works there because you can kind of taste it where like in any given restaurant you go to you can kind of tell that they just kind of picked up the shit from the market right then and there or like right that morning and are cooking all that shit that day multiple examples of of what i'm talking about there throughout the rest of the trip but uh first spot we ate at was this chicken spot it had a view of the mosque that we were going to check out and it was pretty delicious it was the first time that i had like traditionally indian chicken skewers where you know they kind of pound up the meat uh, form it on a metal spike of some sort and then cook it over an open flame. Delicious over rice. They had mutton there too, which I believe is sheep and it tastes delicious. I would recommend if you get the chance to have real mutton and have the sheep or the lamb, it's fucking incredible out of this world. Um, so we end up eating our first meal of the day there. Uh, I think we had had some, uh, some sort of uh, chickpea curry. There are a bunch of different names for it, and I'm so white, and I don't want to butcher any of them. I wish I had my laptop in front of me, but I didn't want any feedback. Um, I could look up the names of the dishes, but there's this chickpea curry that we had had right before that. Also an amazing dish. Got this from a street vendor, you know, just wearing his white beater with holes in it, smoking a beady and fucking cooking us some chole? Chole, I think. I don't, I, I don't know. Anyway, after the chicken spot, hit the mosque. This is all day one in Delhi. And this is like one of the, it's one of the most standout days to me because of just like the shit that I saw. I, I promise you, I'm not going to go. I'll probably go uh, significant days, like day by day. Varanasi is like its own just kind of story. This is really the only Delhi story aside from New Year's Eve, Hoskos Road. That shit was crazy. But 
day one really stood out to me. That's why I'm kind of going through the day by day because it was just kind of my introduction. Like, I don't know how to describe it when you're in a place like that and your senses are overstimulated in the way that mine were walking through those alleyways and walking through the bazaars on the way to the mosque. Everything was just standing out to me. It was so vibrant and lively and there were colors everywhere. There were scarf shops and a dude chopping a lamb up and, you know, a dude selling cell phones out of one store window. And then you, you see people hanging laundry out of their other windows. There are wires everywhere, the most disorganized array of wires you could possibly imagine. It almost is like reminiscent of a thick jungle rooftop but just the wires that look so dangerous. They look like they could collapse at any fucking time and kill people. And I looked it up on the internet. They do. It happens actually kind of uh, frequently. There, there, there are a couple problems with um, the electrical systems in Indian urban areas. And, uh, you know, it, it just, it overwhelms the system with smells. You're smelling curries, incense, um, tons of different types of incense burning all the time all these different types of food. You'll see a dude who just specializes in selling bread. So he's making the bread right there. You're getting the smells from that. You're hearing horns. They say the horns are the second language of India. They're just blaring all the time. You're almost getting hit by fucking mopeds as you're walking through the streets because it's so narrow and they're just flying through there anyways. There are cars going everywhere and it's fucking, it's the most beautiful symphony of chaos I've ever witnessed in my life. And I felt so at home and so comfortable in it so quickly. Um, and that's why day one stood out to me so much. Um, so we go out to the mosque and, and, you know, we see a fight like breaking out in between it. They end up not letting us in because I have a camera and I didn't want to leave the camera anywhere. Um, and we were cool with that. So we ended up, uh, food touring a little bit more. I'm pretty sure that actually was like, we were so tired. We just kind of loafed around that area, checked out the bazaar a little bit more, ate a couple more things around the hostel that day. Um, a really good chicken spot that night again. But, uh, you know, needed some rest, needed to wind down, met some people at the hostel, made a British friend named Savannah. Savannah, shout out to you. You've been listening. I hope you're checking out this episode because she's going to be in a lot of this. Um, it's just, it, yeah. So we had to go back and unwind. But the next day we had like a whole ass day planned for Delhi. And honestly, I'm going to say the next day. But I really think the next sequence of events takes place over a couple days. But for the sake of making it somewhat bearable to listen to my voice talk about this shit for however long I'm going to go on for. Because I have control of the fucking microphone and put it out there. And it's fucking cool. I got this whole thing to set it to myself. It's like 12.30, 1 a.m. on a fucking Tuesday. And I'm sitting here recording because I want to. So, day two. We, uh, day two through five, really, we, this is the next like five, six days in Delhi all the way through New Year's Eve. Um, the first like major thing that I remember was going to Kareem's, like the best restaurant I've ever probably eaten at in my life. Cause it was the most unique dining experience I've ever had. We walk up, there's a fat line already. It's lunchtime. It's probably like 1245 in the afternoon or something like that. Uh, in yeah, 12, 12 to one o'clock lunchtime peak and fat line but the line is in the kitchen because the kitchen is outdoors there are different sections you're kind of in this alleyway that's paved that's in between a whole bunch of buildings that all belong to the restaurant and at the bottoms of the buildings are the kitchen you have the kebab section you have the curry station you have the bread station you have the um you know, drink station. There's an indoor kitchen that you can kind of see that they're probably making a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, 
And it was just the most impressive setup that I've ever seen because the line for people waiting to dine is just in the middle of all of this. The delivery boys, they're clearly doing to-go orders because the delivery boys are flying into the alleyway on mopeds, picking up shit from the kitchen, putting it on the back of their moped, zipping up the bag that keeps it warm or whatever, and then zipping off the other way back into the streets of New Delhi to deliver this food wherever the fuck it's going. It's, again, one of the most harmonious yet chaotic things that I've ever seen, but it just works so well. So we're sitting there waiting. We're talking to people in line. They're interested in us. We're interested in them. We met a lot of cool people um, right then and there. And we get sat by this guy and he immediately is like, what do you want? You want some water? Gives us the menus and we order. I think he brings out bread for the table and we start looking through and we already know from the things that we had witnessed at looking at the kitchen for the last half hour, from the cooking meats on the spikes, from the bread station with the dude huddled over his little basket, throwing the bread, tossing it like a Frisbee onto this hot stone, letting it stick, and then pulling off the cooked ones and throwing them in the basket with a towel, delivering it to the guy that it needs to go to. Absolute artwork to sit there and watch it. Um, we had just witnessed that for the last half hour, so we know we're going to go insane we know we're gonna go ham food has been relatively cheap so far i don't think before that point i had spent more than like 225 or three bucks on food genuinely like like three american dollars per meal i think is what i had spent up until that point so we're going crazy guy comes back we had figured out what we wanted and we just fire off to this guy we fire off everything we're getting it's so many fucking items we're filling up the whole table there's four of us it's me quentin max and savannah um our british friend who we met again shout out you sav um and we're just firing off the order to this guy just going and he's sitting there just nodding just listening and nodding he's, he's taking it all down and Max is the first, like, when the guy walks away, Max gets a little skeptical. He's like, did he write any of that down? And we were like, nah, I don't think he did, but we're just going to trust the process. This motherfucker brought out everything that we had fired at him, didn't write down a single thing. He'd probably been working at this joint for, like, 30 years or something like that. He was a master. He just knew everything that we wanted, brought it out all in an orderly fashion in, like, almost like an order that he like knew you needed to eat it in. Like this came out first. Uh, we had this uh, bread dish. It was almost like a non stuffed with a pea curry. It was peas mashed up with curry seasoning on it. It wasn't liquid curry. It was almost like a dry curry peas paste. And it was in between this kind of fluffy non. And I still cannot figure out what it is. I've, actually, I've even tried to look it up online. I can't find the dish. I've looked at Kareem's menu, but I can't. there's no pictures. I can't exactly tell what the dish is. But, oh, my God, it was one of the best things I've ever eaten in my life. And it's so funny that I can't tell you what one of the best things I've ever eaten in my life is called. It's very common with me is to love something so much that I forget the fucking name of it. Um the butter chicken at this place was like nothing I've ever tasted before. It melted in your mouth. The sauce was the perfect combination of the butter flavor mixed with the spices. And it was this golden orange kind of color that coated it. Came in this thing, dipping the bread in that sauce that the butter chicken comes in. It was an experience like I can't even, I can't put it into words for you. It was miraculous. It was nothing short of a miracle what was in that bowl in front of me. We had plenty of other dishes come in front of us just dish after dish after dish so guy comes over again 
We fire off a couple more things to him. He's like, yep, gets it down, brings them all back. We're getting ready to leave, and we're like, oh, shit, how do we pay? Like, is he going to bring us a bill? So we see that there's a window. So we go up, and the waiter meets us there, and he just tells us the price right away. And uh, this is when Max is like, okay, there's there's no way you can tell me the exact price and know, like, from the amount of food that we had just ordered what it is. And he's like, we can go through it if you want. Like, he gives us that kind of look where he's like, you can, we can, we can go through it if you want. I can show you, like, you know, menu versus, like, the calculation. He's like, all right, let's do it. So we sat there and did it. And sent for fucking sent this guy was perfect yeah he he perfectly knew our bill just off the top of his head i mean maybe he used a calculator before and he just had it memorized he knew what it was i'm guessing that's the likely scenario or whatever he did but i want to believe that he just knew it in his head he added up the menu prices he just knows it like the back of his hand right we left him a fat tip um we paid it ended up being 30 american dollars total for all the food for four people so it was like 657 a person and we had we feasted and we smacked everything it was one of the most standout meals of my entire fucking life it was so good so so good um i still dream about that meal and believe me every single one of those dreams is a wet one um no doubt no doubt about that i i fantasize about kareem's on the on the daily basis i I really think about that butter chicken at least two to three times a day and uh it still comes to my dreams i'm probably gonna dream about it tonight now that i'm talking about it so we enjoy that delicious meal at uh kareem's and and keep in mind the the sequence of events that i'm about to fire off all over a couple days but it's gonna seem just the way I transition can seem like it's in the same day because I'm gonna say shit like then or you know things like that so after Kareem or like after after Kareem's we're walking around this marketplace I'm like lost dude I I can't find them I'm kind of like walking around I'm talking to some people I'm looking in the shops just kind of having a good time eventually I'm like all right I can't like find them I thought they were in the vicinity I call turns out they were really close they're just waiting for um a tuk-tuk and uh, it's going to take us um, to the next destination. Things may be a little out of order in this too. If I ever retell this story, if things are in a different order, don't blame me. I'm firing this shit off the top of my head and I just spill yerba mate on my shirt. So I'm lost. Can't find them. They're hella close. They're just waiting on the tuk-tuk. Take us to our next destination. I think we were going to go eat. And we hop in the four-seater tuk-tuk. Dude's hella chill. He's like, hey, what's up? Uh, pulls off and goes to make a left turn into this narrow-ass alleyway. Like a narrow-ass streetway. still a roadway. There are really small cars on it, but mostly mopeds and tuk-tuks. Like that's all you find on this roadway. Right before he's able to make the left, this giant black SUV being driven by white people. Like we look, we see in the driver's seat, in the passenger seat, two very clearly white people. And we're like, holy shit, like, they like from here? Like that, they don't look like they know how to be driving that and they're about to turn onto a street that I don't think they should be turning onto in that caliber of a vehicle. But they're full sending. They turn right into this alleyway and we get stuck directly behind them. Like directly behind them. I think Max had said it was supposed to be an 11 minute ride to our next destination, it ended up being, I think, a 55 to an hour and five minute 
to an hour and five minute uh, tuk-tuk ride. It was the most hilarious sequence of events. I mean, it wasn't actually that hilarious. I bet it inconvenienced a lot of people that day. And it kind of inconvenienced us. We were pissed at first, but then we found the hilarity in the situation. <laughs> These who we ended up assuming that they're Russian just because we heard them getting out of the car and speaking in a very Russian sounding language. It could have been any of those sounding languages. I'm not going to go through it. We're going to go with Russian for the sake of the story. These Russian people are driving down this narrow ass alleyway and causing absolute mayhem. People on the mopeds coming one way, can't get around. It is just causing the most atrocious traffic nightmare you could possibly imagine. There's hordes of people coming from both ways, just blocking the intersection. And then there's this massive car just in the middle of all of it. There are locals that are running stores just trying to help guide the car through. The lady driving the car, the Russian lady driving the car at one point starts fucking crying <laughs> behind the steering wheel and just starts losing it because it's so hectic. She's causing such, like probably the worst traffic jam that this alleyway has ever seen is directly her fault for making the fucking turn down this alleyway. I'm sitting there and all I can think about in my head is like what sleazy fucking rent-a-car salesman just gave these fucking poor probably Russian tourists an SUV to drive through the streets of New Delhi. Like I wouldn't recommend driving anywhere in India unless India is where you learned how to drive or you're planning on moving there and you need to learn how to drive there. Those are the only two circumstances in which it's acceptable to drive here because if you don't know the roads and you don't know how to drive there and how people operate there and where you can go and where you can't go, you're going to be fucked, dude. You're going to be fucked like these people. They were fucked. So we're moving at a pace of about a mile an hour for the entire time through this alleyway because again, we are stuck directly behind them. It's causing such commotion. People are poking their heads out of their houses to look. We're getting out of the tuk-tuk, taking pictures of the whole situation, smoking beady. I'm pretty sure we asked the guy if we could hotbox the tuk-tuk with hash, and he said no, but he said we could walk alongside it and smoke it. So we did, and we're just taking pictures. Everybody, Some people are laughing. Some people are clearly frustrated. They were trying to get somewhere, and it just fucked their whole day. But I will never, ever, ever forget that Russian lady's face ever in my life because it was the look of pure it, it looked like me when like you know I see like uh when I was out there the other day I was describing how scared I was of the ocean like it's, it's almost like me approaching a four foot wave which is a pussy wave in in the grand scheme of things but for me I was like holy shit this is a large wave and it crashed on top of me and I became fearful because I just felt the power of the ocean that's how this lady looked in the middle of this Indian road and it was one of the most standout events of the entire trip it was fucking great I loved it and I know that sounds kind of fucked up to say but I really did she really entertained the fuck out of me and gave me a great story to tell it's, I, I, when I sit down and actually like put that story into writing one day I know it will be one of the most descriptive areas of the travel writing because <laughs> it was so good. It was so fucking funny. Oh. So we're approaching New Year's Eve in New Delhi, and we really want to party. We made a lot of good friends at the hostel. Uh, Savannah's now just a part of the travel group at this point. She's already planning her next destinations with us, and we're planning the rest of the trip together. Um, and it's our last couple days in Delhi, and we're just looking to party. We were like at that point, we had seen like all the tourist stuff, um, not even really touristy stuff, just like we had seen all the big things. We'd seen the spice markets. We had gone around. We had immersed ourselves with the food, the locals. Um, we had kind of 
played Delhi out. It's just a really large city. It's, it's a very large urban city um, where you can see a lot of cool shit, like, you know, just monkeys randomly going on buildings, large parks, um, dirt areas, paved areas, British architecture, Indian architecture. It's a really, really cool urban area with a ton of shit to do. Really fun to check out. Um, but we needed to send it off properly, so we went to Hoskos Road on New Year's Eve to go party with everybody. We had went with a group of friends from the hostel, and we were just going nuts. We were going ham. We were finding bar after bar after bar. And when we got to, like, the main part of Hoskos Road, if you've ever been out, like, on a big holiday weekend, like, I'm trying to think what the relative comparison in the States would be or, like, you know, a place like Reno where I spent a decent amount of time where it's just a massive crawl weekend and there are people, drunk people flooded the streets. Hoskos Road was a caliber I couldn't even describe. It was just packed. It was actually kind of a wide area. Um, it wasn't at all like the first alleyway I described. It was more wide. Um, the streets were more spread out. The uh, storefronts were a little more um, open, a little, a little more accessible. And it was just flooded with people. You were walking. It looked like sardine cans. Like you could just, you were walking in front of you and you better hope you don't lose your group because it's just going to be in a sea of human beings. Um, so we're trying to get into bar after bar on this road and everyone's just at full capacity because there are thousands, thousands and thousands and thousands of people out um, in this road. So we're walking around and this night's going on, getting some food. I think we got like Momo, which is this uh, like dumpling type thing. And there was a fast food chain that sells it called Momo Gogo. And from the level of alcohol I had in me, the Momo Gogo just smacked so hard. It hit the spot. It was like greasy, almost like a pot sticker. And I just smacked like 12 of them. And it was great. I'm sitting there eating my Momo. And all of a sudden, I just hear like pop, 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 like clap, like clapping, almost metal clinking. And I see, th again, thousands of people just part this street like the fucking Red Sea. Like it looked like Moses had just slammed his staff in the middle of Hoskos Road, the New Delhi on New Year's Eve. And everyone just parted to either side of the street and opened up a clear alleyway. And I followed the crowd, obviously. I'm like, oh shit, what the fuck's going on? So I'm sitting there eating my Momo. And I look to my left and there is a man, a very, very large gentleman without a shirt on and a leather jacket stumbling down the street, blood dripping from his forehead. He looks fucked up. He got a big old black eye, and he is just stumbling down the street. Mind you, this dude's a tank. This man is an absolute unit of a human being. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? And I look a little bit behind him, and there's a group of like five or six dudes just whacking the fuck out of this dude with their belts like the metal end of their belts they are whipping this man with the metal end and they're leading him to the cops and then the cops arrest the guy that all these guys are beating the living fuck out of this man is stumbling through the streets like he looked like he couldn't go any further he looked like um he looked like the mountain from game of thrones when Oberyn martell had him in the locks you know i mean obviously we all if you've seen game of thrones you know how that fight ends and uh no need for me to go into that now but if you know what i'm talking about game of thrones he looks like the mountain when the mountain was on the underside of the fight and uh stumbling through the streets bleeding everywhere blood gushing and these dudes are just whacking him and i'm sitting there in awe i think Probably some Momo fell out of my mouth because my jaw was just dropped. And immediately after, 
the sea of people just returned and it was just like normal. It was just like life went on. Everybody was probably like, damn, that shit was crazy, but just went on. The, the, the dude that got the living fuck beat out of him got arrested and life went on, man. And that was, uh, that was that, that was like one of the last standout moments of Delhi. And of course there was so much more in Delhi and I'll go into it in depth one day, but I think I've already been talking for a decently long time and I don't have any intention of slowing down because I'm excited. Like I said, this is something I could talk about for hours and hours and hours with enough yerba mate. Sponsor me, please. So from Delhi, we ended up doing the golden triangle. This is the part that I'm going to brush over. All of it was sick as fuck. We went to Jaipur and we went to Agra. Agra is where the Taj Mahal is. Taj Mahal was one of the most impressive pieces of architecture I've ever seen in my life. It's all made of marble and precious stones. Um, the history behind it is really cool. Not going to get into that right now because I don't feel like going into the history of the Taj Mahal. It's dope. Look it up online. Go there yourself. Take the tour. It's really incredible. Definitely a tourist attraction, but a well worth it one. Um, some of the most beautiful pictures I've ever taken we're at um, the Taj. It's it's like a must. It's it's obligatory. It's absolutely obligatory. You must go to the Taj Mahal if you're in India, especially if you're in northern India. Um, so we did that. We stayed in all those places for a couple days. And uh, from Agra, it's our last night. And Quentin's like, okay, get ready, boys. We're going to Varanasi. I had known about Varanasi before the trip from this uh, documentary I watched or documentary series. It was more of a docuseries called uh, Tales by Light. It's about this photographer that goes around different places and takes some of the most impressive photographs you'll ever see. And he does a whole episode on Varanasi that uh, Quentin made me watch before we, uh, before I left, actually, which was perfect. I needed to see that before we went. So we're prepping in Agra for Varanasi. We're like, how are we going to get there? Um, and we ended up taking a sleeper bus. Sleeper bus was a fucking crazy experience. You literally sit in a fish tank. Like, you lay down in a fish tank. And you're on a bus, and it's just this little cabin with a pillow and like a kind of futon type mattress, and you just knock out on a bumpy ass bump bus ride. I think it was like eight, nine, maybe even ten hour bus ride from Agra to Varanasi. But um, I ended up falling asleep. We took a pit stop at like five a.m. on the side of the road, just went out, ripped like three BDs and a fucking uh, tea, like a chai tea, and maybe ate some food, and then knocked out for the rest of the ride again, um, and then woke up in Varanasi and uh that was really like the most defining aspect of the whole trip so get ready if you're still with me now I'm about to go fucking in because this place changed me as a person like and it's why I want to brush over you know Agra and the Taj and it was all cool I'm not going to get as descriptive Delhi was like the standout experience because it was my intro to India <sighs> Varanasi was like my intro to a different side of myself like straight up so Step out, and we're really close to the hostel. The bus dropped us off like a block or two away from the hostel. And the first thing I noticed is there are just cows all over the street. Like, when I was in Peru, Cusco was run by dogs, and Lima was run by cats. Like, you know, there's just cats and dogs everywhere. But Varanasi, the, the cows rule the streets. They just walk around like they're the fucking kings, because they are. They just shit in the road um all over the place they're everywhere they're really friendly actually i don't i didn't walk up to any it's not like i'm anxious to fucking pet a cow or anything like that i don't look at them as a particularly um adorable animal and i i really rather think of them as cheeseburger which you know a lot of people you don't talk about that shit especially not in varanasi like 
it's interesting. The the Hindu religion, they take it, and I learned a lot about that in Varanasi. Um, Hindus take uh, the no beef eating and the and the cow is very sacred. Like uh, I befriended a, a restaurant owner who I'll introduce in a second. Um, who ended up explaining to me that, you know, the cow is sacred and that you don't even talk about, you know, eating it or, you know, what you would do with that. You, you treat it as like a walking God. And, uh, that's how the cows walk the streets. They really do. Like they've clearly evolved their own attitude to Rome Varanasi, like the gods, but it's really cool because it adds to the aspect of the city. So first thing I noticed is we were near the riverbank of the Ganges river because you could like kind of see the entrance to it from where we were at that point. And our hostel was like right around the corner from the very beginning of Varanasi's stretch, like main stretch of the, uh, the Ganges River. So it was quieter than anywhere else I had been in India at that point. The traffic wasn't a lot. A lot of people were walking. Of course, there were mopeds, a couple of buses, but really just like not a lot of people around. And I was like, this is really interesting. Is the whole city like this? Because it, it was so calm and, and so, honestly, at that point, refreshing. I almost felt like a breath of fresh air. Like, oh, my God, like a quiet area. I don't hear horns blaring constantly. And that was, like, the first thing I noticed. We get to the hostel, check in, and we start walking along the bank of the Ganges. And uh, we had eaten at that point, probably smoked a little hash, maybe even taken a power nap. But that first walk, I remember just kind of, being, I'm always infatuated with water whenever I'm around it. I feel like weird when I'm away from water for too long. I don't know if that was growing up in California or, you know, just having the, cause you know, lakes do the job for me too. It doesn't need to be the ocean. I'm just obsessed with bodies of water. I really love them. Um, I feel like drawn to them just in, in almost every aspect an unexplainable aspect whenever I see them. So starting to get captivated by this river as we're walking along the banks. And I'm also noticing that it's the most street art that I've seen in India so far. I actually learned later after the trip, after watching a Ted talk with now one of my favorite photographers, JR, he does this Ted talk called can art change the world. And he does this whole, um, monologue and expose on about how art can change the world. And he explained, he did this project in India and apparently putting up street art and putting up posters and stuff in India is pretty frowned upon in, in most sense of the word. But in Varanasi, there was a lot of street art. A lot of it was um, religious. Um, there were a lot of Shiva. There was a lot. Um, There's this giant stone brick. It's stone and brick. I think it's mostly brick. It's a set of steps, right? And if you have the river to the right of you, the stone steps are on the uh, left side of the pathway. Pathway is all paved cement. It looks very aquatic there are boats everywhere seaside restaurants um and it's all up on these cliffs that have staircases up to it down to the main pathway that goes along the bank of the ganges river so on this brick staircase is this giant swastika and it was it's so interesting to see to me the the peaceful use of that symbol and it's wonderful because you also know because it's 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 the straight one and they have it so large that you can really only tell what it is when you're out on the river looking back on it or if you have like an aerial drone shot so we eventually went on the river and that's how i got to see it but and i walked up and down this bank all the time because our hostel was at the end of it um and then you can walk all the way down on the left hand side of the river which is the edge of the city of varanasi so walking up at that first day 
captivated by all the street art. You see some American Western influence graffiti there too. There's a skeleton, some block leathers, a really dope mural of Shiva posted on this pillar. It was a traditional, it looked like a traditional style painting. And I also noticed all these little shrines everywhere, right? With holes in the ground around them. And I was wondering, I was like, what the fuck are those? Like, why is it a shrine? And I ended up finding that there's actually this uh, kind of trend where they built these like public restroom holes um, all over India to just like, you know, add to public bathrooms so that people can use them and not have to use the streets. But a lot of the people just ended up turning these little restrooms into like religious shrines. They're not, they're in every city. They're almost, they're in almost every city that I went to. And it's, it's, it's really awesome actually. Um, I'm not going to describe it as hilarious. I think old Matt would have described that as hilarious. And, and I think I, part of me wants to, because part of me finds it funny that they were trying to find a solution to the um, public urination and defecation problem by building more just free to use bathrooms. Cause like flushable public bathrooms that you have to use, you have to pay for. And a lot of people can't, you know, they, they're not going to pay to use the bathroom because they're, they don't even have food to eat because the poverty is so intense in a lot of the areas, especially the urban ones. And the, uh, the are land rubens. Some India has some of the most intensive poverty you'll ever witness in your entire life. I'm, I'm going to have to get into that soon actually, because it would be atrocious of me not to, not to mention that. But anyway, they built these bathrooms to deal with that problem. People using them in the street. And instead of using them for that, people were like, nah, fuck you. We're going to keep using the street and make religious shrines out of them. But the reason I don't use hilarious anymore is because I actually think it's a really dope aspect of the culture. Cause you can go in there and there's artwork in there dedicated to religious figures and a whole bunch of like incense and these, and these little shrines that are built with just holes in the middle that, you know, were meant to be shat in. But, um, you know, those were all over and I noticed those as I'm walking up and down the banks and as we're kind of like going through the alleyways next to the bank, which is just this maze, almost like a labyrinth of stone, like cobblestone pathways and tight alleyways with buildings next to it. Um, so we're walking upstream and I, I know that we're approaching, um, what I had known we, we were going to see, we were going to our first of many trips and our first daytime trip to the to the burning gots of Varanasi. Now, the burning gots are this uh, phenomenon. I, w- I would say it's it's almost a, a human created phenomenon. It's like nothing I've ever felt before in my life, um, experiencing it. So, in the Hindu faith, the Ganges River is like the birthplace of life, as far as I'm concerned. I could be butchering this. I don't think I am, and I genuinely apologize if I am. But I, I think. I have this right where in the Hindu faith, the Ganges is like the birthplace of like life in general. I don't know the exact characters or figures that uh, were born there or anything like that. But, you know, like Adam and Eve, I think the Adam and Eve, like the Garden of Eden uh, in the Hindu faith is the Ganges River. And it's a real place that you can go to. So a massive, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but a massive percentage of the Indian population practices the Hindu faith. And this is the place where life started and life should go to end. So cremation and the concept of reincarnation is huge in India. It impacts the culture because people are, uh, for the most part, practicers of Hinduism. And reincarnation is a heavy aspect of that. And I believe, again, could be butchering this, but as far as I know, I think that the 
um, incineration of a body, the uh, cremation of a body is an essential part to moving forward with your um, reincarnation. And it's a huge ceremony that if you're a practicer of Hinduism, you want to be cremated next to the Ganges River. You want your body dunked in the Ganges where, where all life came from and then cremated on the bank next to it. And a large percentage of the population, this is their how they want to die. This is their dying wish. This is how they want to be buried. Like, you know how we're always like, oh, spread my ashes here, spread my ashes there and stuff like that. Like, no, their ashes are going to the Ganges. That's where people go. So literally 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I, I'm pretty sure 24-7. I There might be like a three or four hour period where they're set up. But it goes all day and all night where religious shaman, volunteers, Varanasi locals, and families are just burning bodies all day. People come from all over the country, the Varanasi, to just have their loved ones burned on the banks. And you can walk up and see it. So like the brick steps I was describing that had the, the swastika artwork on it, it was almost reminiscent of that where you have the bank of the river there's a little bit of sand then there's the water but up the bank towards the land it's like kind of a hill there's there's uh there's an incline and there are levels to it there's these large wooden steps that are probably like two feet long and like a foot high uh, probably even more than that it's, it's actually probably like four or five feet long genuinely like probably like four or five feet long like a man like a human man length long and then like a foot high and there's stairs and on each step there are rows of these structures made of metal i think to put wood underneath it and then a mat and the body on top of it and then you can light the wood from underneath and burn the body and there are rows of these structures and and i can't really i don't we had one of the religious figures of the community explain to us what the structures were called and i fucking can't remember can't remember what they're called but there's just rows of them and that's on the bank that's where the lowest cast gets um, burned and I, I could go and probably I'll, I'll go into a whole maybe separate tangent one of these days soon as to uh, my, my criticisms of Indian society because I have to criticize every society every society and every government deserves criticism that's how it is not here to do that today but one of the big in my personal and humblest of opinions my western white opinion and the only opinion I can formulate based off of personal experience and things that I've read is that the caste system is atrocious and needs to be dealt away with. But it's still very prevalent in, in Indian society. And you can see that at the burning gods because the structures that I just described where they're on the stairs and closest to the bank of the river are where the lowest caste gets burned. Then there's a second level to those stairs with a little bit nicer structures, a little bit more space. They're not so crammed on top of each other. Um, that's where like the, the middle cast, um, they pay to get burned there. And then in a series of buildings above the stairs and enclosed areas, there are private blocked off um, crematoriums where you know you dunk your loved one in the river 
bring them up to the private crematorium, and that's where the upper cast gets burned. And those run 24-7 too. Those, those run all the time. People are doing this all the time because I don't I, I can't even imagine how time slots would work. I really think it, I can't even sit here and speculate. I'm going to learn one of these more days more about the process of what it's like to book having it there because this is a thought of mine now, just now in this moment. When I was there, I wasn't thinking about this at all, but I can't even imagine what it would be like to have to book like your funeral, like at these burning gots or like, you know, have a time slot. I don't know how the time slot would work because it is just continuous dead bodies showing up, being brought to the river. There's a walk through ceremony. They walk through the holy part of the city, which are part of those alleyways that I was describing. Again, just a labyrinth of, of cobblestone and buildings just tightly packed together. Um, architecture like I didn't see anywhere else in India, but also still what I came to learn was I believe very uniquely Indian and just parades happening of family members carrying through dead bodies. And I was, this was like the most reverent that I was on the trip. I didn't take any photos. Um, and in the documentary that I watched, the guy took photos, but I think he was doing it in a way. If you're going to take photos there, you have to have a purpose for doing it. You have to talk to people. You have to get their permission because they're bringing their loved ones there to pass on to the next life. Like this is like a very intense and powerful and emotional moment where you can feel the energy of everybody there to help their loved one move forward, move like the soul move forward. And that's like their belief system. And it's not necessarily mine, but I felt the power behind the belief. I really did. Cause I could see just the reverence in the people around the area. It was, it was intense. It was an intense reverence and you get captivated by the fire, especially remember that night, like night two or three, when we were out there, we were just engrossed. We were, took a boat out about five, not miles, Jesus Christ. My perception is a decent, a decent amount out onto the a decent, a decent distance out onto the river. We went out, and so we could see the whole landscape of the Burning Goths. And I was just—it's almost like when you are engulfed by a campfire, you just can't stop looking at the campfire. But on a mass scale, and you know it's human bodies. And in that moment, I just like—you felt the release of energy. It was the closest thing I could describe to feeling a soul to, to like having a tangible feeling of what a soul is because I felt so many souls were being released in that area in a positive and happy way. And the energy was not negative and it almost brought me to tears because I could physically feel the cycle of life happening in front of me. And I don't know if it was knowing that the Ganges river is viewed as like a place where, you know, um, you know, that life was born and goes to end, um, in a, to me, hypothetical, like I, it's a religious belief that people think really happened, but to me, I'm always skeptical cause I'm not a religious person, but again, I just, I felt it. I felt this fucking energy there that again, I, 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 I like to credit myself with being pretty good at finding words to describe things. And that physical feeling that overcame me when I watched hundreds, nah, maybe not hundreds, but close to a hundred bodies burning all at one time. It's indescribable. It's, it's, it's a human experience that can only truly be felt when you're there. I really think because I couldn't pass that on secondary. You're not going to get that even from seeing me on the camera describing this shit, but 
man, I, I really found that there has to be some other connection with, with the universe itself. Like human life has a connection with the universe itself in that moment, with nature itself. We are a byproduct of a larger organism, which is the planet. And the planet is a byproduct of a larger organism, which is the universe and, and so on and so forth. However big that gets, can't even comprehend the scope of that as a human being. But in that moment, I felt the transfer and release of energy because you've always been taught in science class that matter can't be created nor destroyed. So you're just changing states. When you when when life ends, it's just the same matter changing states. And I felt in that moment that there's some reality to the human spirit or soul or consciousness being able to in a different way comprehend that transfer. And I don't know how to explain that. I probably won't ever be able to. You probably don't get to experience it until you die. But I really was out there just thinking about how significant, significantly insignificant my life is. Because I make my own significance, but I, I'm just a byproduct of this larger thing. And my energy is just borrowed. This experience is borrowed. I'm borrowed material. And one day this material is going to transfer into something else and probably something beautiful. Whether that be in destruction or in rebirth or in whatever the fuck happens but I, I felt that cycle of life the energy from the cycle of life that day um those days on on the burning gods those multiple experiences in the burning gods and uh for that and for many other reasons which i'm going to get into just one more tonight made varanasi the the best place that i've ever been it just changed my life it changed my fucking life being there man and uh I couldn't believe it. I really, I really couldn't believe that I felt this connection with a place that deeply. It just felt like something I had never felt before, a feeling I had never felt before. Sorry for the listeners for that crinkling of the can. Alex reminds me constantly when he's with me. I make a lot of noise. I like the studio. It's a good setup. Uh, hi, for those of you watching visually, I, I got the aesthetics today. I think I set it up nicely. And, you know, maybe it's a little distracting, maybe not. And there's the sounds of my can again. I'm again sorry for the audio listeners. It's fucking annoying. Um, but yeah, it, it that experience and and many more. It, it's it's like falling in love. I fell in love with the city of Varanasi. It's almost how when you feel love so strong for another person, and someone asks you why, and you just say because I do, because you feel it in your heart of hearts that you are in love. That's how I felt in Varanasi, um, for the experience that I had with the burning gods, for the experience that I had with the food culture there, we befriended this wonderful man, um, named Vicky and we called him Vicky G because Quentin taught me that I guess adding G to the end of someone's name is like a respect thing. Like I respect you and I look up to you like I, you're, you're, it's almost like, um, the respectful conjugation in Spanish and shit. Like, it's like that. I think G to the end is just like being respectful. So we called him Vicky G. And he owned this cafe. And his mom ran the grocery store underneath the cafe that they ran. They were all vegetarian. And when you're in India, you want at least uh, one meal a day that you know is going to fill you up and keep you full and be good. And just like, you know, because it's great to explore. But you're going to eat some shit, especially as a Westerner, especially as an American, you're going to eat some shit that gives you the runs, 
real badly. So if you find a place that you know for sure doesn't give you the runs and you like and is really good, you eat there probably at least once a day if you're in that area. And the um, Railroad Cafe, Vicky G's place, is, was that place for us. He made amazing vegetarian food, was great for breakfast, um, made this amazing vegetarian potato breakfast sandwich on like a croissant roll. And you could, he did two eggs, right, almost sandwiched together, fried at first and then sandwiched together and smashed with the yolk. And then a potato patty with some sort of sauce and curry on it and I think some onions and Oh, it was just oh, chef's kiss. It was absolutely beautiful breakfast. I love the vegetarian fried rice there. The traditional meals with the paneer and the curry and the rice with the naan on the side was all smacking. Um, but this guy ended up really becoming our homie because we were eating there for two days in a row at the point. Once we had come like the third time, because we stayed in Varanasi for like five or six days, we ended up being there a lot. And we ate multiple meals a day, usually at Vicky's because we loved him so much. And there was a very particular reason that we ended up eating there so much is that like on time two or three, he ended up obviously starting to know us. He came over and talked to us one day. And this man, as he's sitting down talking to us after he had just served us this wonderful food from the groceries that he had gotten downstairs at the market that was attached to his place. And I believe run by his mother, um, sits down and pulls out this baseball bat of a hash joint. Just this absolute fucking Tommy Chonger. And lights it up and starts talking to us. And he's like, y'all want some? And we go, fuck yeah, we want some. Smart business tactic, right? Vicky G was a business genius. He knew it. He was going to get us loaded on hash. And we were going to want to order more shit. And that happened every time we ate there. We would go in. We would roll with him. We would smoke with him. Motherfucker loves smoking hash. That's another thing with the really hardcore Hindus. Hash is actually a religious thing. And he was um, he was the one that really explained to me all the stuff about the Hindu faith. I really got to learn about Hinduism firsthand through him because he, uh, Vicky is Vicky G. is a very religious man who ran a very humble and delicious and fresh and great cafe with amazing food. Um, and just loves to get high as balls all day and uh, serve the people of Varanasi some food and pray and live a very religious and humble lifestyle. And one of the most beautiful human beings I've ever met in my life smoked us out fat every single day. We ate, like I said, at least once a day at his place, sometimes twice a day. We got drunk with him one night, brought him some old monk whiskey and sitting there chiefing. And we had been out all day that day in Varanasi exploring. So I forgot to mention the only quiet part of Varanasi is that riverbank, which I spent most of my time on. When you go, when you get through that maze of alleyways that I was talking about, it becomes just like any other Indian city where it's just packed with cars, horns everywhere, blaring. But the second you make it through that maze and come out onto that river, it's just calm. It's just peace. It's just quiet. Um, and Vicky G's place is right around the corner from the Ganges. He says he goes and bathes in there like pretty much almost every morning, just goes swimming in there. And uh, one night we were out all day doing stuff. That's what the story that I was just on. We were out all day just doing shit. And Quentin comes back and he was a veg only restaurant. And he goes, Baya, or however you say, uh, brother. I know I pronounce it so bad, but I remember being Baya, Baya, I believe his brother. He's like, brother, can you make me some tandoori chicken? <laughs> and Vicky G goes, no, veg only. And we're sitting there. We're like halfway through a joint. We're pretty drunk at this point. And he goes, Baya, please, please. Like with this like drunk face. It just gives him this look. And he goes, okay. 
Vicky goes and hops on his moped, drives like two blocks down, picks up a chicken, comes back, cooks it for us at his place. We had bought some hash off him at that point, so we smoked him out for that one and paid like 300 rupee, which is like double the price of everything on the menu. And we paid that, um, which again came out to like four or five bucks, three, three, three to five bucks um, for that tandoori chicken. And he cooked up a mean tandoori chicken. It was so good. It was delicious. And uh, we just spent so much time with him. I got to learn a lot about Varanasi culture through him um, living a more religious lifestyle. I learned about um, the uh, shaman or uh, gurus on, on the, the Hindu shaman on the banks of the river. They, they wear their orange garbs. They smoke hash all day. They meditate out there for hours and hours and look like they're in a state of nirvana. Um, it's really crazy. It's really just, it was a beautiful city. The, I, the friendship I had with Vicky, the, uh, people that I met there, we met this, um, Australian man living in Italy named Sammy, Sammy, shout out to you. I doubt you're ever going to listen to this podcast, but, uh, we've made really good friends with him. He was definitely contributed to the experience. The best chai stand in all of India was in Varanasi. This kid that we met uh, claimed to have the best chai, and he did. He had some amazing chai tea for like 15 cents a cup. I drank so much chai in Varanasi. I drank so much chai the whole trip, but he really did have one of the best stands that I've uh, ever, ever drank at. We, we would chief be these, and she should just sit there and sip chai with this kid all day. And... Uh, Man, it was just an experience like no other. Again, I just felt like everything that I did there, every bite that I had, every meal that I ate, there was some reverence to it. Even the hashish that I was smoking, it wasn't just like getting high for highs, being high sake. It was almost like this is an experience. This is a religious experience that I'm having right now. And everything about that city. I remember we ended up getting delayed on our way to Kolkata. And we had to stay an extra two days there. And I was like, that's the best news I've heard all trip. Because of how much I just loved this fucking city. And again, uh, there are honestly about 40 more individual stories that I could pick through on the best ones, but those are the most stand out to me for Varanasi. Max and Quentin went swimming in the Ganges and had to do like seven days of antibiotics because they went downstream from where the bodies are being dipped. The locals do it all the time. I got some of the best photographs on the banks. I was not about to fuck with that type of bacteria. Just like I knew my body wouldn't be accustomed to it, but Shout out to Max and Quentin for being the balls deep travelers that they are, getting in the water, giving me some of the best photo ops of the whole trip. Um, everything about the city, like I said, I just I fell in love. It felt like a place where my mind, my body, and my essence of being human were all within perfect sync with one another. And uh, I, you, you can't top that. You really can't even put that feeling into words it would be a disservice to the way that i felt that day if i if i tried to do that so anyways varanasi was absolutely one of the just greatest experiences in my life a city that really um swept me off my feet it's the only way i can really describe it again the connection with vicky was definitely the most standout but we definitely met a lot more people um at the hostel the guys running it, I became really tight with. We hung out with them a lot. Um, one of them's like traveling around now. He just posted a bunch of stuff on his Instagram um, about his trip to England, which was really cool because he was talking to us about traveling. He's like, oh, you guys are traveling here. I can't wait till I can like, you know, travel outside of uh, Varanasi. And it was just, 
everything. The food was exquisite in every corner, even the chai tea. Uh, you know, we, we had some traditionally Indian dishes. We had some more like, you know, like Western, um, Westernized Indian dishes that like, you know, had influence from everything. We went, like we had a pizza place uh, out on the water and it was awesome. It was really good. And just everything, everything about that place just has my heart forever. Like that city has my entire and my whole heart because I, like I said, just got a different inward perspective. Um, I got a different level of myself kind of unlocked there. And uh, it's going to sound a lot prettier when, you know, I sit down and, and hopefully put it into writing um, my truest feelings for that. Because, you know, the adjectives could just go on and on and on and on about how much I love that fucking city and how much I love that place. Um, so, yeah, look out for that when I write about that. But, you know, I think it would be a good time to hop away from Varanasi, get on the train, one of the best train rides of my life, um, and get to when we ended the trip, which was uh, Kolkata, when we were going to go visit Howrah, which was the school, um, or one of the sites where a school that maybe Max's grandma put up or was affiliated with, and uh, one of their good friends, Sumit, who um, is a social worker, out in Kolkata and also works with making sure that kids in Howard get some sort of an education um, and have access to educational buildings and, and textbooks and resources and things like that. Um, that's who we were going out there to meet. We were going out there to do that. They had made, um, Max and Quentin were talking about all the connections that they had in, in Kolkata and they knew a guy named, I'm not going to say his name just in case, um, uh, probably have to bleep soon without too. Maybe not. I don't know because it's all positive things that I'm saying. Nothing. Everything is going to be so positive. So guy named Pro Bowl. He was a great friend of Max and Q, and he uh, owns property in Kolkata. He owned like this really nice like gated area, and he uh, let us stay in it um, for cheap, like an Airbnb style type situation. And it was a really cool corner of town. Uh, the train ride there to Kolkata was one of the most incredible experiences of my life. You got to really like see a place. You get to really see like the rural aspects of a place when you take a train and you get to like, you know, see some stuff. And, and also it's kind of boring because you travel, but I really had a great experience just like, you know, listening to music, smoking beady, sitting on the side of the train. It felt very picturesque. It felt very movie-like when we were on our way there. But we checked into that beautiful place, didn't even really check in. We dropped our stuff off. Um, and started kind of making our way around the city. We went to Max and Q's favorite breakfast spot, which was a chai spot. And they also made like stuffed bread. Um, again, I forget what it's called, but they had just an assortment of stuffed breads. You could get like sweet, savory. There was just a ton of different options. I remember the one that I got was like a cardamom and curry and potato paste it was like a potato filled bread one and it, it, it like stacked up and i could easily put away like eight of them they were so good so easy to eat the texture the way that the potato forms inside the bread almost makes it like uh like an empanada type thing where you bite into it and it's just like it's soft but in a way where you can still definitely chew it and it was beautiful. It was just a beautiful mesh of spices, potato, and bread. 
and we ate there for the first, uh, you know, like 30, 45 minutes that we were in Kolkata. Walked around and got to see some really cool stuff. Again, the next sequence of events is all going to take place over a couple of days, but for the sake of just telling them in the verbal setting, all meshed into one day. Um, but a lot of things that I noticed about Kolkata was it's like super, super, super um, like paved. It was more paved than anywhere that I had seen in India up until that point in the sense of the streets were really uh, freshly paved. There were yellow taxi cabs everywhere instead of tuk-tuks, which was interesting to me um, because you didn't really see that in any other city that I had been to in India. I'm sure there are other cities where it's similar to that, but it was the first one I had seen where it was yellow taxis instead of rickshaws, which definitely added to the aesthetic of the city. It made it feel very urban. Oh, it, and it was interesting that Kolkata was the capital of the British Raj because it did, you could feel, again, I've never been to England. I can only imagine from things that I've read and seen as to what England would feel like. But when I was walking through it, I was like, oh, this is like British India. Like, this is really, it's cool because um, it's got its own flavor because you still get clearly really heavy influence of Indian culture within Kolkata as well. But then there are certain aspects to it, like the taxi cabs and the, um, the green that's incorporated into the city. There are like planter boxes everywhere, which I also, um, didn't see as much of in Delhi or Varanasi or, or really any other city that we went to, um, you know, with like trees planted and stuff like that. The storefronts even felt like a little more, for lack of a better term, Western, they felt like a little more Western architecture. Storefronts had big glass windows. They were a little bit more flashy. They had awnings and banners on them. You didn't have to look in to figure out what it was. You could see from the outside. There was like a coffee shop on the corner next to a bookstore across from like a YMCA type building. And, uh, it's just really cool layout. One day we were walking through and uh, Max just goes, oh my God, no way. Um, I haven't talked with them in a while. Um, again, I'm fairly confident that I'm not butchering this. Uh, he goes, Rumjan. And this kid runs up to him and hugs him. And it's apparently this kid um, who's been basically raised on the streets um, not basically, I think as far as I'm concerned, that's, that's a circumstance. I'm sure, um, there's some form of shelter that, uh, he's raised under. I, it's probably not the, uh, prettiest of circumstances. And I'll get into that in a minute into the things that I saw in Howrah, but India just has, uh, some, some really intensive poverty. And I'm, I'm about to get into that, but the re the, the, reuniting of, of rooms on the max was really heartwarming. It was really cool. Uh, he had a picture of him in his school uniform, brought max to tears right there. It was such a heartwarming moment to see, um, them reunited because clearly max had been in the area doing work before, um, with the more underprivileged, uh, section of the population of that area, Kolkata and Howra, which is adjacent to Kolkata. Um, Talked to his mom. He was like, he was like, hey, can you come hang out with us for a little bit? Took him shopping, bought him some new shoes, a backpack, took him around, had him like, you know, um, on their back, took pictures. I have one of my favorite pictures ever is uh, Rumjan standing in the middle of the marketplace. And I got on one knee to take the photo of him. 
and the camera's looking up, so he looks tall. And there's a bunch of adults, and they're all looking really weird as to like, why is this white guy taking a picture of this random kid? Um, but they're all like looking at the camera really funky. Some of them are moving, so their faces are blurred. And he is just perfectly there, pointing. He's wearing an all black fit. He's got black sweats, a black hoodie, these white fresh new shoes that we just bought him and he's posing pointing to the shoes and it's one of the freshest poses one of the greatest photos i've ever taken was of him in that marketplace with all the commotion and big people standing around like looking at him looking at me which was the camera in the picture because i'm not in it it's just him and uh we had just like a really fun day with him dropped him back off with his mom and uh you know i talked to max i was like man like so you've seen he's like i basically seen him like grow up every time i've come back i i see them i you know um you know talk to them work with them he knows them he's in contact with them too i'm pretty sure max has ways to contact them and quentin does as well they have so many friends in the area that they built up uh, i think something that i left out and max and quentin are listening hopefully they enjoy this part but a big part of the travel experience is the people you travel with and Max and Quentin were some of the best travel partners ever because they just, they fully dive in and you can tell when they were going back, they had, they were meeting up with people that they had already had these like long lasting connections with. They go back, they're so immersed in the culture, they were so immersed in the area and it was just such a beautiful way to be able to experience a place like that, to already have people who had connections there, who had friends there, people they were running into just on the street. We got that random encounter. We were staying at Pro Ball's place. We were eating with Sumit and uh, actually hit up Sumit for another type of experience. We had went to a really nice dinner with him, um, like what, the first or the second night that we were there. It was at a phenomenal restaurant, really fancy. So this was in like the... Um, Weird thing about Kolkata is the class disparity is a little less apparent. Um, you know the intensive poverty is still there, but it's mostly around Kolkata. It's not within it. Like within Delhi, you can see the intensive poverty just right there intermixed with everything. In Kolkata, it's a little bit more separated where the areas around the city are incredibly impoverished and uh definitely just n needs to be uh addressed and dealt with and i'll dive into that in a second but we ended up meeting pro ball at this place for dinner that was so fancy it just looked so nice it was all stone the the indoor dining was one of the coolest aesthetics that i've ever seen these long tables with white cloth and glass tops um, a little water fountain outside. You walk up this neon staircase to get up, and the layout of it almost looks like a like an Americanized Chinese restaurant on the inside. But uh, you know, black walls, red carpet, golden lighting. It was it was an amazing color layout, and the food came out. The presentation was next level. It looked like the chef and the sous chefs and the line cooks back there just put so much effort into what they do I, I again this is one of those places i can't even remember the name of the fucking place i should have written it down that's one thing i didn't do with my trip i was like oh i'm good enough at remembering and retelling i should have written a lot of shit down and when i go back and i'm gonna go back to all these places i'll find out where they are from max and all them um i should have written the names down but 
the food was exquisite. I know I've used that adjective already before in this long ass monologue about India, but good God, the food was so good. I had this honey sesame glazed paneer, which is the cheese. It's like a, a goat cheese. It's kind of hard and it almost is reminiscent to like a tofu meat kind of mixture absolutely one of the best flavor combos i've ever had in my life the paneer with the honey glaze and just the sesame seeds on top of it it, it was one of the best flavor combos i've ever had over um some basmati rice with a little bit of uh the sauce that they provided that i couldn't even tell you what the makings of the sauce were flavor just exploding all in my mouth so we had that dinner with sumit that night and it was the first time that max and quentin were seeing him in india that trip and so we went all out. They were like a reuniting dinner. So good to see you. So good to work with you. And then they started talking about like, okay, so are you guys ready to go into Howrah tomorrow? And I got kind of the verbal introduction as to what I was going to go see. But again, it's one of those things until you're actually there. Just like the Aussie, uh, just like the Aussie Ghats, the burning Ghats at the Ganges River. What we saw in Howrah, what I saw in Howrah was life-changing it was it was eye-opening to an incredible level where you just see some and it's 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 hard to describe entirely as negative because i don't know i've reflected about this experience a lot i don't know if it's just my privileged upbringing that immediately makes me think it's negative there's clearly so many negative humanitarian problems that I'll describe to you and you see what I'm meaning, which is why I talk about it in a negative context where you're just only able to describe it as the worst poverty you've ever seen, the worst, the worst of the worst, the the most dire of situations you could possibly imagine. But then you talk to the people living there, and that's what maybe adds a little bit of a positive element because when you hear their perspective or you know you see how happy they are to see you or maybe what they're happy with and what their perception of happiness is i couldn't even imagine because i couldn't talk to them on that level to unlock their brains on that level but like i said i got the verbal introduction but when you pull up to haura there's nothing that could possibly prepare you for it you walk through what looked like generally normal streets genuinely normal streets and you can continue to kind of you know get a sense of the intense shit that you're going to witness if you just kind of look into the places that you're kind of walking past there's what I would call houses and storefronts in these kind of like low cement buildings. We walked past this field of these kids playing soccer with uh, some makeshift goals set up. And it kind of felt like a regular, you know, like urban place until you get into this, you turn a corner almost like it felt like we just turned a corner and it opens up into this dump, which I can only describe as a dump. It's just mountains of trash that have then like formed into terrain and you're walking through it and you realize that there are houses and merchant fronts up just as you continue to walk through what I can only just, and it's a, it's a guard, it's an area for garbage. I, I don't want to say dump as in like, oh, this place is a dump. I mean, like it's literally a place for garbage. Um, that's clearly what most of the members of the community do is they maintain the landfill they maintain the mountains of garbage um the houses 
you know, you see these large mountains and from afar, they would look like they're just normal terrain, but it's, it's, it's garbage. It's all garbage. And I remember Quentin had showed me a photo that he had taken on his first trip to Howrah where it, it was again an undershot where you can see the cement there are gutters and sewage like just kind of above the sidewalks and underneath the houses and so you can see that like the trash filled water underneath the house and then in the background just the mounts of the garbage but like it's it was it's a beautifully horrific photo because the the lighting and the color that he got and the angle that he got um, and the people that he got in the photo really showed the dynamic of the place. And every photo that I chose to post from Howrah, I did take photos there. Every photo that I chose to post had people smiling in it. And people were smiling and we were interacting with them and it was a beautiful thing. And uh, it was really eye-opening to kind of see the um ability to switch to happiness in a situation like that because there's no way that everybody in the village is like like Kolkata's right next door which is a very again well put together quaint wealthy city and it's 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 beautiful it's a beautiful fucking city and Howrah is right across the bridge and then you're on the landfill of the city and you realize that people are literally living on it so you don't again it's the most intense of poverty you ever see but it's separate from the city not like it was in delhi delhi you'll see the intensive lower caste poverty um starvation uh disabilities physical um like, like physical disabilities of extreme calibers just you know things that you can't again i can't even I don't even want to describe. I'm getting the visuals in my head right now, and I'm not. I, maybe I haven't been looking at this camera the whole time. I'm sorry about that for the video watchers, but I can I can see what I'm telling to you in front of me right now. I can literally picture it. I can I can see it in front of me, and this isn't the most pleasant of ones to bring back to have the movie rolling in front of me as I'm talking to you about this. Isn't the most pleasant of shit, but you see disfiguration, like physical disfiguration of a of a new level, and clearly completely untreated because they can't treat it because they can't afford it because they barely they're, they're, they're starving they can't eat they they're the lowest of the cast the poverty is so intense there's no way that any of them make more than a dollar a day if they're making any money at all and in Howrah it's completely separate like I said in, in Delhi you could see that in there but Howrah you're just in that area there's nothing around it it's just that because it's separate from the main part of Kolkata. So we're walking through and we're taking some of these hauntingly beautiful photos and we're kind of like seeing the place. And Sumit's leading us, so he's clearly, he's got a destination in mind. And we come across this kind of open, elevated area in which there's a view of, like you can see in the distance that you're above other things you're you're above rooftops you can see some things kind of on the bottom and we've clearly gone up a little bit and we turn and there's this row of buildings and all of a sudden i just see this horde of kids just come running out of these buildings and they know Sumit. they can clearly like they know he's like they just know he's coming they probably like heard his footsteps and they're like Sumit's here and he had three white boys with him and all the kids were just looking at us like, I don't think it, I don't want to 
assume i'm not going to make any assumptions like oh i was like the first or only white person they ever saw i don't want to i doubt that i I severely doubt that and uh, of course that but like of course the look that they were giving was like it's rare that they're seeing a white person there like it looked like they were like whoa that's like a different type of human you know what i mean um and that's just that's just what i got from the gaze um there was like a little bit of of awe there you know what i mean it just it was curious it it was so innocent because it was the kids were aged like you know three to fucking 15 there was a whole whole gaggle of children and the way that they were looking was just to me what i could see the picture painted on their faces was curiosity it was just like whoa like that's a rarity to see that type of figure in front of me and i i feel like i could tell that i could pick up that energy but that faded quickly too when we started interacting with them and just started kind of goofing around and um, we couldn't really talk to them. I mean, obviously I could sit there and try and speak advanced English, but some of them were just children who probably don't even have a good grasp on their own language. And then what I learned is uh, the chances of, of these kids learning to read or learn English or arithmetic or anything like that, it's just, it's low um bluntly put it's just it's just low because we saw the one building that is the classroom for all of these kids and it's packed to the brim with them it's one room the ages are all over the place and we got to see you know the books that they were working with and the materials that they were working with it was it was scarce and sumit does really great work in social work to you know get them supplies and get them teachers and lesson plans and things like that and it's clear that there's only so much that can be done because even with my experiences in in the american education system it's hard it's hard to you know establish legitimate systems of education and especially in an area where there's just one room one hut literally built on a mountain of garbage with tons of kids just of every age grouping all in there trying to learn the same stuff and having probably only volunteer teachers and like teachers like adults in the area who have managed to gain some education themselves or maybe were from there managed to get out and then come back um I, I again i don't know this was unfortunately an area where i really just had to go through sumit for translation and and couldn't really talk to people on the on the deep level that i wanted to um, or be able to like, you know, be able to tell their story. So I'm hoping next time I go back, um, I, you know, engage more through either a translator or myself learning the language a little bit more, but we were kind of playing with the kids. We were talking with them, like not really talking, just kind of like messing around with them, doing all the stuff. And I'm just trying to make observations in my head too, as I'm like smiling and playing, I'm like noticing that a lot of them have runny noses. Um, you know, I, I, I was just making small observations. Obviously the clothes they were wearing were, were tattered and hand me down and probably just like, you know, either made or acquired in, in, in some way, maybe from the, from the trash heaps or, or from stores if, if, if the families have built up enough money. But I, from my understanding from Sumit, from what I remember, it was an area where people are easily making less than a dollar a day. Uh, I could assume it's still that way. It was that way when I went there. And so you just, you know, you work with what you got. I'm assuming most of the money goes to food because even the shelter that I saw, it looked makeshift and, and, and handmade. It was really just a shelter to 
protect them from the sky and I'm sure the elements from time to time. But, um, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's the best way to describe it where you just start making small observations like that. And you're not, I'm not trying to, I don't know the best way to describe this. Cause again, I don't want to make it sound like privilege. Like, Oh, I was shocked. I knew this existed. I knew, I knew this type of poverty existed. I wasn't that arrogant at the time, but again, just seeing it firsthand and interacting with these people for that short period of time, this was just, this was just a couple hours. But the thing that really got to me that I noticed like a lot, um, that, really had to fight back the tears when I was working with the kids. I noticed none of them were wearing glasses. Um, and I just, I, I thought about how I needed glasses back in like second or third grade. I just knew like I couldn't see from the back of the classroom. And I, I just knew there was so, that's just one aspect of probably so much attention, both medical and just well-being, physical and, and, and education and mental. So many different facets of, of life that like I know and the life that I was privileged enough to grow up with and experience and, and, and be raised with and understanding that and then seeing what's in front of you and then like wondering how you would even begin to and, and I know if Alex was here, he'd be like, yeah, just do it. Yeah, you, you know, get the steps. But when I was there in the moment, it felt so grand. You're just like, what do you, what do you do here? How do you fix something like this on this scale? You'd have to dedicate your life to it, really. And people do, great people, great people do. And I, I, I hope to one day be in a position where I can at least passively make a difference over there. If I can't, like you know, like actively be there teaching and and, and helping people to at least passively, you know, start addressing problems like that because. I just know some of those kids are, there's no way living on garbage is, is healthy, uh, environment to grow up. And I'm sure some of the, the health problems that stem from that. And, and, and again, just the, uh, ability of surviving, just survival becomes a whole different type of, of experience in, in that type of setting. And again, I can't really put it into words, as to how it made me feel, but it didn't feel good eating that night. And I was, I was really distracted at dinner. I think I was, I was a bit of an asshole that night, honestly, cause it was, it was post that experience. And I, I just remember being at dinner and this is one of my regrets. I brought it up at Mexican. I, I didn't get the opportunity to bring it up with Sumit yet. We, we had dinner with Sumit and I just remember I, I was captivated with my phone. Cause I was like trying to write down different things of like different people I could contact. And I was so, I, I didn't even, I wasn't even hungry that night after seeing what I seeing what I saw and like food to me is the biggest part. We were eating at a Chinese restaurant in Kolkata. It was, it was really good. It was, that was also a really cool experience. Um, a Chinese born Indian citizen whose parents, I believe immigrated to India and opened up the restaurant and then he was running it really well done, really good Chinese food. But I, I wasn't hungry that night. I, I, I couldn't feel good eating after, after seeing what I had saw because I knew a lot of those kids were hungry. I knew a lot of those kids needed medication. I knew a lot of those kids needed glasses. I knew a lot of those kids needed a lesson plan to where they could, you know, start to learn how to read. And it, it did show me where I've always been the type of person, like I was such a punk ass Western kid that was like, fuck school, fuck education and all that shit, fuck learning how to read. But then when I saw, you know, that there are people that don't, even ever get the opportunity to learn any like to even learn that stuff to even learn the scope of how that works and what it is and and they're working with materials that are so hard to learn from and and you know there's so many different age levels and you don't know what 
again, I can't even describe, I can't even describe the scope of the problem to you right now, but it, it was just, it was an experience that really, again, shifted my goals to also make me want, like it made me want to be in a position to be able to just change certain aspects of that somewhere in the world because no human uh, with the advancements that we've made there's no reason for human beings to be living that way to for kids to not have glasses to have sniffling noses all the time to have no access to education uh, to for people for human beings to be making less than a dollar a day and not even able to like feed themselves in a proper manner or have a place to stay that's not literally on top of a pile of garbage and it just that whole experience defined so much of my emotion from that trip because I I mean I've experienced intense poverty in the states I mean I was I got to work a lot in the tenderloin district of San Francisco which you know is plagued by some of the most intense American poverty you'll see but still like I, I've never seen kids out on the streets in in the tenderloin never and uh Saw a lot of kids that day. You know, I was spending time with a lot of kids. It's just how they grow up. It's how they live. And there's not nothing that's done about it. There's not nothing. There are people like Sumit that, you know, put a little bit of effort towards fixing it, uh, toward put all the effort that they can. Um, and that's an amazing, beautiful thing. And I hope to be one of those people that day. But these are things that should be addressed because to me, it's like a humanitarian crisis where it's just like we know how life can be lived. We know the life that can be offered to human beings, the comfortable one at this point, shouldn't exist. The Haura shouldn't exist. Um, and I'm going to, you know, continue probably talking about it and write about it. I've been trying to find the right words for the experience. It's it's interesting to talk about unfiltered like this because, again, I feel like I'll, I feel like I'm constantly either misspeaking or or not really capturing exactly how I how this impacted me and how I felt and how there were positives and negatives and 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 there it was just a human experience of a different caliber a human experience of something that can't be just can't be felt or described unless you're just there with the people and talking about it in front of you and uh yeah like I said it made me an asshole at dinner that night I was just engrossed in my own thoughts i was just trapped in my own head like how does something like this exist how how have we let it get to this point where even whether they know they're suffering or not and again i couldn't i couldn't know that i feel like they know that they're suffering like i feel like there's no way that they don't know that there there's better out there but there's probably just not like the circumstances available for them to get out of it and like i i really think that um, on a systemic and, and institutional level, like shit like that needs to be addressed around the world. And I'm going to do my best to either use my voice or my fiscal power or whatever the fuck it is I have to start making tangible changes in those, those sections of the world. But that was an experience like no other man. And I know that was a, you know, not the happiest of notes to end on um, after some really cool travel stories, but I feel like I'd be, and again, there's so much of the trip that I've left out because I could just go on forever about this. And I probably will again. I'll listen to this. I'll see what stories I tell told. And if you guys liked these ones, if you enjoyed these travel stories, if you thought they were descriptive, uh, funny, I, uh, 
I try and be funny, especially when I write. Like I, I, I like telling jokes a lot, but when I'm naturally just telling these stories, I like being funny at some points. But like it's also it's just I'm just telling it how I felt. Like this is how I felt in all of these moments. There were there were funny times. There were times where I cried. There were times where I, you know, contemplated existence as a whole. Um, it, it, I felt a whole range of emotions but that that was the Howard was a defining moment of of my life in general just being able to be exposed to that and you know i didn't really do much um we i really just got to experience it i didn't do much work in terms of spending time outside of the scope of spending time with the kids that trip but i i want i have this urge to do more i have this urge to go back spend more time see if i can help develop a lesson plan a little bit more maybe like okay these kids are learning this uh, this age grouping is learning this and you know we'll be able to separate it a little bit more i don't even know where to start it's something that i got to start really tangibly thinking about it more like alex would say just do it just create the steps and just do it so i'm i'm, I'm in the process of thinking that over in my head but if i can describe it if this is just telling the story of what I felt and what I had. And maybe I'll post some of the pictures again soon. Some of them up are on my personal Instagram for those of you that follow that. But India was incredible. I think it was uh, my favorite place. I've never felt more connected with a place. Like I said, I've been to a few places now. I went to Vietnam right after that, Peru, um, and a couple more places. And uh, I just really never, ever felt connected with any place, even in the U.S., like I have with, with India as a whole. I've been itching to get back. I've been itching to talk about it. And that's why I thought tonight would be a good night to just sit down and rant a little bit. This will come out as an episode or a point fiver. I don't know. And if you guys have made it this far and listened to my incessant rambling, I, I appreciate you as always. Um, Alex is asleep right now. Like I said, it's like 2 a.m. on a Tuesday. I just decided to fucking on a whim pull the trigger and record this, set up a little solo studio for myself and see how that shit went. So... Um, as always, more career podcasters, podcast content is going to be coming your way weekly. Check us out as always on the Spotify, YouTube, especially we got a TikTok page coming, um, at you shortly. I'm going to start posting some funny TikToks. See if I can't get creative, maybe vine famous, like back in, uh, you know, like my aspirations back in high school, but the TikTok equivalent, um, follow us on Twitter, retweet us. I'm going to start tweeting a lot more and, uh, you know, if you enjoyed these travel stories and you want to hear some more, I've got a couple different uh, places that I've been. I can cut it down. I can I can shorten the story length. I can I can widen it. Um, you know, this was definitely a long time to listen to one person talk, and I know the way I tell stories. Again, if you ever hear these stories again, they're probably going to come out a little differently. Probably come out a little. Uh, <laughs> if I actually remember the chronological order, I was just firing off experiences in my head tonight because I wanted to talk about the travel, but. Yeah, those kids have my heart forever. And Howra, I'm going to do everything in my power to be in a position to that. That's the first place I would like to make some changes. And then if I can make very tangible and awesome changes in Howra, maybe branch out to the rest of India or any other place that is like Howra and see what changes I can't, you know, bring about in this world. I'm definitely inspired to. I'm inspired to go back. Um, and, you know, I've got a lot of different goals in my life right now. And there's a lot of things that I need to start zoning in on. And as Alex would always tell me, scheduling and working towards. And I think in the grander scheme of things, uh, tackling issues like Howrah is one of those. So 
be on the lookout for that. Uh, if my wreck of the week is uh, fuck, that's delicious. If you want to get inspired to travel, you want to get inspired to eat, listen to some of Action Bronson's music too. Um, White Bronco was one of my favorite albums in 2020. That shit was fucking heat. So fire. Um, not going to do a travel monologue next time. I'm going to keep doing these monologues. I really like these. I felt like I could go forever tonight and I actually feel like bad. It's not even for the sake of editing or anything. Like I just feel like at this point in the episode, there's only, I've exhausted this round of travel stories. So hopefully I, uh, inspired you to maybe check out India one day. And, um, again, as always tell a friend, check us out. And, uh, I love all of you. Peace.